1: Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. We often talk about uh, the cost of living but let's begin today's programme by talking about the standard of living that we have in this country and the goals that we should set for ourselves. Things like poverty and a goal of no poverty or zero hunger, good health and well-being, quality education, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, affordable and clean energy, decent work and economic growth, industry, innovation and infrastructure, reduced inequalities, sustainable cities and communities, responsible consumption and production, climate action, life below water, life on land. These are are just some of the 17 United Nations sustainable development goals. And the good news is Ireland is making significant progress in meeting many of its international goals, especially when it comes to ending poverty and implementing social and ecological justice. This is according to the Minister for the Environment Eamon Ryan, who was speaking in New York and updating the United Nations on the country's progress on implementing those sustainable development goals. However, uh, he is uh, being contested in this claim with 70 Irish civil society groups coming together to say that the state is failing to reach the furthest behind in Irish society and that the claim that we're reaching 80% of the UN's sustainable development goal targets Uh, is off the mark let's speak uh, to uh, dr sean healy ceo with social justice ireland which is one of the 70 groups that uh, has come together to criticize what the minister uh, is saying about progress in this country and uh, a very good morning to you sean and thank you indeed for joining us Uh, he's a bit off the mark is he
2: he's more than a bit off the mark this is the this is typical of this government actually that they make all these kinds of assertions that aren't based in fact at all. I've heard the same minister making assertions uh, only a few weeks ago at the National Economic Dialogue that nobody had been left behind in the budget of 2023 and that everybody was better off today than they were this time last year, which is simply untrue, basically. The research is there. Don't, count, don't depend on Social Justice Ireland. Check out the ESRI. Check out the CSO. These are the places that, you know, even he can't dispute. Uh, the bottom line in this context is that Ireland claims... It, 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 he's claiming... He's speaking today, actually, uh, at, 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 at the UN, and he's claiming that Ireland is reaching 80% of the SDGs, mm. as they're called the Sustainable Development Goals. He's nowhere near it. Take the example of poverty... Uh, the target is no poverty. Now, today, we have 671,000 people in Ireland living below the poverty line. Right. Now, there's 188,000 of those are children, we, we, and we've talked about that number here, here before. You can't possibly say that, uh, that there's no poverty in Ireland when there's 671,000 people living below the poverty line, and that poverty line is the agreed poverty line uh, Set as, as, by Eurostat, not mm. by us, or not even with, okay. by the Irish government. But could you say Eurostat.
1: that eighty percent of people aren't living in poverty?
2: Uh, no, it still is mm. uh, there. No, you, you could say that eighty percent are not. Uh, but, but yes, but the target isn't eighty percent aren't living in poverty. Mm. That's a bit like saying, you know, I ran twenty miles of a marathon. You can't say you ran the marathon. Yeah. Okay. So the bottom line in this is. They're not achieving their targets. They're pretending that they are. And where the poverty line in particular issue is is, is dealt with, what they're doing is using an indicator that's used for the poorest countries in the world, far away from Ireland and Europe, and the north of the world where they're talking about a euro 25 a day or a dollar 25 a day now that's meaningless in ireland mm-hmm. we have a way of measuring poverty it's the same across all your eu countries and um, let's look at that we're we're quite a distance away from no poverty to claim that we are at no poverty is nonsense uh, and i think there's a certain amount of that going on that mm. like the reality is that what's happening out there is completely at odds um, with uh, what the government is actually saying or put it the other way around what the government is saying is completely at odds with the lived experience of thousands of people across ireland nice and i we, and i think that's an issue that government needs to just face and it's a reality take action to deal with
1: it. Mm, and if that's true, how can the Minister go before the United Nations and claim otherwise, and why is it that the United Nations will allow that to happen?
2: Well, that's the way the United Nations operates, but... Uh, that's why also this coalition of 70 plus uh, organisations in civil society and in the trade union movement mm. and in, in uh, universities and academics have come together uh, and it's co- the, that coalition is called Coalition 2030 because it's 2030 is the date at which these targets, these uh, sustainable development goals are supposed to be met. But uh, the way that the thing works is this, uh, the, the government gets to present its position unchallenged and every government in the un gets the same kind of right but what we have is got this coalition that will then respond and point out that there's a whole lot of different uh, issues that are not being addressed and that the, the the experience of people is at odds with what the government is actually claiming um, in the eight years since the goals were agreed um, or it is eight years since the mm. goals were agreed and We're still waiting for the kind of urgency and the ambition and the sort of cross governmental leadership from the state that would drive progress. And the the review raises serious questions about how Ireland is measuring its progress. For example, on the the achieving poverty one that I talked about already. Mm. But not just that. Um, If you look uh, you're,
1: You're not saying, though, that Eamon Ryan is in New York representing Ireland telling porky pies?
2: I'm te- I, I don't know. I, I know the man well. Uh, I don't know if he's on top of the data. I don't, I'm not sure he's on top even of the experience of Irish people, because he couldn't go out and make some of the claims he's making in this report if he was actually conscious of the, or, of the reality that people, a lot of people are actually facing. Um
1: I'm not sure which is worse, if uh, the Minister uh, isn't telling the truth, let's say, or if he's not on top of his brief.
2: Well... The bottom line in it, I'm not going to make a t- judgment on whether yeah. or not he's telling the truth, but I know for a fact he's not. A, he's not delivering a report that is accurate.
1: Like, mm. we but he is reaching, also speaking on behalf of the government uh, as well, is, of course. Right. Yeah, yeah,
2: that is correct. And okay. he's speaking, and part of our problem is that the government's uh, approach to it isn't isn't sort of integrated sufficiently. Like we're we've been arguing for a long time that mm. the, the the whole sustainable development goal stuff should be anchored in the Department of Taoiseach because that's the only place that has the whole uh, everybody Mm -hmm. involved and that we've also been arguing that uh, uh, government departments should also be accountable for the delivery of the SDG at the target level, mm. so therefore, social protection should be uh, the Department of Social Protection should be responsible for ensuring that we get to zero poverty.
1: Okay, but a target take it, is
2: zero poverty, not not thirteen percent, mm, which is I, where we're at at the I, moment.
1: I, I take it though that the Department of Social Protection agrees with what Eamon Ryan is to say in New York, because governments speak with one voice. Uh, and you're to meet with the Minister for Social Protection today. Uh, do you believe Heather Humphreys? is of the same opinion which well, she, she should
2: probably be. is because she has made some very interesting comments about the last budget which again suggests that she's not too clear about what actually has has now been admitted both by the Taoiseach and the Minister for Finance at the National Economic Dialogue both of them said that it, based on the evidence then it wasn't what they had intended but that people did get left behind and that the they, they they, what people got in in Budget 23, uh, people, the poorest and the most vulnerable, uh, many of them actually didn't maintain their standard of living since 2022. Mm. Uh, And there's a huge contrast. And the problem is, actually, and we'll be saying this to Minister Humphreys today, the danger is. That they look like they're going to repeat the same mistakes again, because if you contrast what, what the two types of ends of the spectrum that they're proposing, on one side they're saying we're going to have tax cuts which will give a permanent increase in income to the better off. At the same time, they're saying we're going to only give a relatively small uh, welfare income increase. And last year they gave 12 euro, and they should have given 20 just to stand still. This year it requires €25 Euro a week increase just for people to stand still. Mm. But the, broad, the interesting thing is, government seems to be lining up again to do this uh, only a small bit of it permanent, that, that the increase will be mm. less than 25 and into its space then they will put, into the space they will put yeah. one-off payments. And, and
1: that's what and you're saying market. is needed. Vincent DePaul and others are saying 27.50 uh, increase right, yeah. to all core social welfare rates uh, and And uh, it won't just be yourselves that meet uh, with Heather Humphreys today. The minister will be meeting with all sorts of groups ahead of the budget to hear uh, exactly uh, the type of thing that you're saying now. I
2: guarantee you one thing, Michael, not a single organisation there is going to recommend an increase less than €25 a week. And that's because there's a few different ways of measuring how to ensure that people maintain their standard of living. And the lowest number is 25 euros. Mm. a week. So that's the lowest that needs to be given just to maintain where people are at. Remember, they're not, it's not going to reduce poverty, it's not going to, it's going to make any huge difference other than maintain people at, the, at the, the income level that they're at in real terms, in buying power, in other words. So uh, what we're basically, uh, as well as that, of course, we're also arguing today that there should be a focus on children, but that the focus should be on increasing child benefit uh, to make sure that when people get the the payment, that if they pick up a job, subsequently if they're unemployed and they pick up a job, they don't lose the payment because that's always a problem in that context. Mm. And that's where we favour increasing child benefit. And again, There's there's serious work that needs to be done there. The government should have a basic uh, priority of protecting the vulnerable in this kind of uh,
1: situation. Can the government afford increases on that scale? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, of course they can this year, next year and the year after. But what about the years thereafter? I,
2: I, absolutely, I, uh, the, the, like we're not we're not talking about spending all of the money that's available. We're far from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we we were at a meeting the other day uh, uh, with the central bank and the Department of Finance uh, and the, the Fiscal Council, and uh, we were agreeing with the, to some of the core ideas that they have. Not all, but some of the core ideas about having a sovereign wealth fund, for example, so that you build up a fund. Uh, like the Norwegians did with their oil money. Mm. And the result is, like in Norway today, they have a reserve fund, of, or they have this sovereign wealth fund, 1.3 trillion trillion (laughs) euro. And the result is it pays 20% Mm. of their budget every year.
1: Okay, but we're not there. We're heavily uh, uh, in debt. We're going to have a surplus, a very significant surplus over the next three years. But who knows, after that, we could be in deficit.
2: We could, yeah, but but like 65 billion euros, an awful lot of surplus, which is what we're going to have by by whatever it is, three years' time, as you say. So, like most of that money where we're concerned would go, not all of it, but most of it would go into ensuring that we can deal with pensions and other various other issues that arise down the line. But the bottom line at this moment is that we can afford to do it. The way we would protect against making any foolish decisions would be this. We would split the budget into we We'd Keep the, the current budget, the normal budget, if you call it that way, not current, but just the normal budget. We keep that in surplus, in, in the black. In other words, we pay away. And on the other side, then, the one-off money that we have, we spend it, not all of it by any, mm-hmm. any means, but a part of it. We would spend it uh, on one-off investment, like building houses, looking after the public transport space. Things that when you spend it, you have it. You don't have to build it again next year. Okay. Okay.
1: You'll be making your case to the Minister today at uh, this pre-budget forum. Okay. Uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, though. Unfortunately, we're out Glad of time, Sean. Thank, you, ever, as Thank always. you. Thank you. That's uh, Dr. Sean Haley, CEO with Social Justice Ireland.
3: Michael Reed on LMFM. We
1: were talking yesterday about uh, how many fewer TV licenses were sold over June and uh, the first week of July, a 25% drop in TV licenses uh, being renewed. Uh, but there's new figures today for the first two weeks of July, and that's a 29% drop compared to the same time last year, which is probably not too surprising because most of the drop that we were talking about yesterday related to the first week of July. Uh, This is a shortfall of €1.3 million for just those two weeks. Uh, And if RTE is going to be short that every two weeks come the end of any given year, uh, it's going to have a severe funding crisis. Let's speak to Fine TD, Colin Burke, who's a member of the Public Accounts Committee. And uh, a very good morning to you, Colin Burke, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. People were obviously upset, annoyed and angry and said that they weren't going to pay their TV licence. Did you expect them... To do what they said they were going to do, or said to do what they said they weren't going to do.
4: Obviously, this debate, this controversy, went on over a period of three weeks. And obviously, there's still issues that we haven't got answers on. Um, <clears throat> we now have a situation where, you know, the the amount brought in in I think in 2021, I don't have two, 2022 figures for license fees um, was 196 million. And as you know, the amount brought in then in advertising was £148 So the licence fee makes up 55% of the total income. And I suppose when you're looking at the whole issue of licence fee, you know, there are over 1,879 people working in RT either, I think it's, and again, these are 2020 figures. With those 1,600 full time, 167 part time, and 96 casuals, so that's 187, uh, one, one, um, 1,879 people working. And I suppose if there is a drop of income, you know, there is an issue either the government through you know funds that they collect from the taxpayers will end up having to give additional money to RTE or the other alternative that will be further cutbacks in RTE Involving um, job losses, and that's something that obviously has to be carefully watched
1: as well. All right. Um, 8,250 fewer licenses for the first two weeks of uh, this month compared to the same time last year. uh, Getting those figures from the Irish Times uh, this morning. Uh, I I take it if it continues at that rate, uh, what's that about? 20,000, let's say, 15,000, 20,000 people not buying a, a TV licence well, when they should 20, be every month.
4: Takes, uh, 20% of 196 million, you're talking about a fair old, um you know, it yeah. could be anything up to 25,000, 30 million could be lost. Sure, I, I was, thinking, thinking, I was
1: period, I, I, thinking about the amount of people because there are ways of recouping it, uh, but you couldn't possibly pay, take 15,000, 20,000 people to court every month.
4: No, but I mean, the, the issue that we have to decide now is Number one, it's important that all of the issues, those sending issues, are clarified um, by RT. As you know, we're we're still waiting for some further information back. Um, we need uh, to have, uh, and I think the new um, uh, director journal has been very upfront. For instance, one of the key issues that I had during the whole cross examination of witnesses was about the piecemeal way in which contracts were made. He's made it quite clear that instead of having different documents that you out know what, what, what under what terms the person is employed, there'll now be one document and on all of the issues um put into it. For instance, one of the documents that was there um in ratio seventy five thousand, um, the memorandum of agreement between um the Noel Kelly who was the um Ryan Robert's agent, um R. T. and Reynolds that document did not contain how much money was being paid over, which is very unusual for an agreement on on uh, on, um, on work without setting out what, what the payment was. And <clears throat> I think it's important that from now on that everything is up front, that everything is set out in a document, whether it's an employment contract or if it's a contract for work to be done, and that it's not a, a multiplicity of, of uh, correspondence and letters. So I think that needs to be clarified. I think also the whole issue in relation to, you know, how do we go forward now in RT in relation Mm. to uh, pay? Is there a need for a cap on the maximum that can be paid? And I think that's an issue that has to be discussed as well.
1: Mm. Do you believe there should be?
4: I believe um, that there has to be something more definitive set out there than the way this was done. Remember, at one stage with a person receiving over 900000 a year in in, um, in payments for work. And, you know, that was the time we were in. Um, you know, it has totally changed now. There's a whole lot of people working RT who are on, you know, under $50,000. Um, and I think we've got to be conscious of, of those people as well and making sure that they're adequately paid for the work that they do and that they're given adequate support um, which I don't believe um, it has been one of the problems, and that's why it has created, I suppose, a lot of bitterness within RT. We now have to build up the trust, both of the workforce in RT, that they are satisfied with the way um, they are being treated, but also the way that no one is is put up in a in a pedestal and getting, uh, you know, ten times the earnings that they're getting.
1: Mm. Do you believe (coughs) that people will continue not to buy the TV licence if that's why they didn't buy their TV licence this month uh, do you believe that they'll continue uh, 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 along those lines (coughs) if salaries are not reduced I mean do you think that people will be happy to pay their TV licence if Joe Duffy is earning 351,000 euro
4: Well I I mean I don't know what the existing contracts are so RTE you have to deal with the existing contracts issue as well but I think going forward, people need to be satisfied that there's full transparency in what's being um paid to presenters um that there is nothing um that's
1: undeclared mm. and that is well as that's what I mean because a lot of the presenters came on air and said this is what I get, uh, Ray Darcy for example 305 305 thousand euro a year and there's nothing on top of that uh, and uh, we're proud to announce that I, I think but people stood back and said what really 305 thousand and I'm paying that through my licence fee
4: Yes, well I mean as you know as I said already 55% of the funds into RTE come from licence fees so the taxpayer is paying 55% mm. of every salary that's going out and that, that's basically what, what it is um, we need now you see one of the problems that we have with existing contracts is that there is a time frame that those contracts um, you know that you can't terminate them immediately because there is an entitlement to um, for RT to be forced to comply with those, the terms of those contracts so that has to be worked through and also the question that I raised, for instance, in relation to contracts, we saw in relation to Ryan Chopardy, where there was side letters, uh, there was agreements and then there was side letters. I asked the question, well, who else is employed mm. where there are agreements and there's also side letters? Now, it appears that we can't do anything about that at the moment, but it means that all future contracts will have to mm. be clearly set out, and I think that's important. As regards how we fund... Um, the, you know, Fianna has produced the document about having um, one fee, and it's uh, important as well that, uh, and it's brought through in relation to the, uh, the 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 household and businesses, that there would be one fee paid by everyone, um, not through the license fee, but that we would reform it in the sense that it would in under the whole uh, revenue um, remit, and that's basically how we would deal with it. But it's also about, it's not only just about funding for RT, but it's also funding for local radio stations and all of the media Mm. nationally. Because, you know, your own station, you provide public service, you provide current affairs, you provide, um, you know, if something urgent arose in your area, you were able to get out that information in a very short period of time, whereas otherwise it wouldn't be possible to get out that information. And you provide a valuable service, and it's important that the appropriate level of support is given to um, your own people, like your own stations right across the
1: country as well. Okay, but would you encourage people to pay their TV license or to well, well, p- to put that another way? way if I to put that another way, if I could, what would you say to somebody who says, "I'm not going to pay my TV license," so that Claire Byrne earns a salary of three hundred and fifty thousand euro a year?
4: Yeah. Well, I think at the moment we're, we we are in a scenario where there are contracts in place, and I have to look at this from a legal point of view. There are contracts in place. We can't, RTE can't walk away from those contracts that easily. Um, they're, they're, most of those contracts are for per periods of time, as I understand it. Um, we have to work through those contracts. Then it's about reviewing them, but it's also about looking at the the, the fees, the licence fees that's collected, is not all going to the people at the top end. Remember that mm. there was 1,879 people in RTE. Mm. There are people down along the line who may be the people that will be the first to go, and that's what I'm concerned about, mm. that if you have a cutback in income um, and that the government are prepared to give additional support to some extent, it may also need a mean that there will be cutbacks, and we need to be very careful about that. But I think once people are satisfied that there's full transparency, I think we can go back uh, to building up that trust.
1: They'll accept the high salaries, will they?
4: No, no, I don't think I think we need to put a cap Mm. on high salaries.
1: Because it seems to me there's two issues. There's the transparency and uh, And the 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 under-the-counter deals, the shenanigans, (laughs) the side deals, all that stuff, uh, the inner circle, the gravy train, and all that sort of stuff that we've been hearing over the last three or four weeks. And then there's the high salaries. And I think people are angry about both issues in equal amounts.
4: Yeah, I, I think on the high salaries, as I said, I think there should be a cap. I mean, one of the proposals made was that the salaries, there should be no a salary above that of a senior or of a minister's salary here in Ireland, which is high enough as well, right, that there wouldn't be any salary above that. Um, and that's one of the proposals being put out. But as I said, the problem that we have at the moment is that there are contracts signed that we're trying to for the moment, and it's about trying to get through those and then working back what is the new salary going to be um, and obviously at a far reduced rate, remember, as I said, there was one person previously receiving over 900000 That was reduced quite substantially, but we now need to bring it down further. And, you know, the, the Irish market um, doesn't have the capacity. You take any of the um, private uh, operators in media in Ireland, they cannot afford to pay um, very high salaries, um, no matter how good the presenter is. They do not have the level of income that's required in order to afford that kind of ser- salary level. Likewise, the license fee payers here in Ireland, our taxpayers, want value for money, um, and they're not satisfied that they're getting value for money by paying out high salaries.
1: All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. And thank you, as always, for joining us on the programme. Colin Burke is at TD LTD and a, a member of the Rockless Public Accounts Committee. Michael,
3: Michael Reid on, on LMFM. Now,
1: the British government's Legacy and Reconciliation Bill has been hugely controversial because of an amnesty that would be given, or a de facto amnesty that would be given, to anybody who committed crimes during the Troubles. That legislation went to the House of Lords and uh, the amnesty clause was removed by the Upper House but yesterday the legislation went back to the House of Commons and MPs reinserted the amnesty. I know that it contains uh, finely balanced political and moral choices that are uncomfortable for many but we should be honest about what we can realistically deliver for the people in Northern Ireland in circumstances where the prospects of achieving justice in the traditional sense are so vanishingly small. Now I know this is challenging for many, but, the conditional, but conditional immunity is a crucial aspect of the information recovery process and this government believes it is the best mechanism by which we can generate the greatest volume of information in the quickest possible time to pass on to families and victims who have been waiting for so long. That's the Northern Secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris. Let's speak to Mark Thompson, CEO with Relatives for Justice. Good morning, Mark, and thanks for joining us on the programme. I think this is exactly what was expected, but it doesn't make it any better for everybody in Northern Ireland who has been very upset about this proposal?
5: No, oh, precisely. And I just think the commentary there by the British appointed Secretary of State to the North, Keaton Harris, uh, was not only mendacious, but uh, deceitful. Um, I, I, I think that the British government have played this kind of illusionary trick that everyone has seen the curtain pull back and seen the reality in some sense of presenting this bill, even in its title, using the word reconciliation. This Bill will put beyond, as Zatanasia himself, Micheál Martin said, the work towards reconciliation will put it beyond our reach. I think you ought to ask why the British government are doing this, and they quote the passage of time and and, and the prospects of prosecutions. The reality is that post the Good Friday Agreement in the North, we had the incorporation into domestic legislation of the Human Rights Act which was the European Convention into Domestic Law. And that provided an agency of families. And not only did the, the, the ceasefires provide a space for families to begin to explore the horrendous experiences that they had in terms of injury and worse, the loss of life of loved ones, but a mechanism by which they could pursue an accountable form of justice. And over the past two decades, what the British government have sought to do is to close down that agency to close down the rule of law on the courts. For example, the police ombudsman, a body created post the Good Friday Agreement to provide confidence in policing, had a retrospective remit that could look at past um, uh, abuses by, by the RUC during the conflict. That office was working effectively and then the resource plug was pulled by the NIO. Then we had uh, the appointment of a, a Attorney General under the devolution of criminal justice and policing, and, and the Office of the Attorney General began to reopen inquests where new evidence had either come, fresh evidence come to light, or evidence that had been previously ignored. And, re- and the reality was that inquests were working, the Police Ombudsman's was, Office was working, and other mechanisms to deal with the, the, the kind of conflict and the hurt and the pain for families in an official capacity were working. And delivering And and it was really important. And what the British government have done over the last uh, decade and a half or so is that they've used their sovereignty as a shield to prevent any exposure. They've prevaricated and obfuscated. They've delayed. They've destroyed evidence. uh, And they've shielded uh, members of Crown forces uh, in terms of being accountable.
1: And And is that... is that fundamental to uh, this amnesty that is being mm-hmm. proposed? I, I mean, uh, is there any interest in uh, Republican paramilitaries or Loyalist paramilitaries? Is this all about members or former members of the British forces?
5: Well, 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 well from our perspective, it's everybody's accountable. And, and, and what we have had is we've had an open and up of the justice system to a point whereby it's created an almost level playing field when, during the conflict, there wasn't a level playing field, particularly for victims of the RUC and the British Army, or where there was evidence of collusion. That playing field was rigged. And with a, a, a bit more transparency and accountability, what has been happening is, and you'll have seen it with Bala Murphy, um, the, the overturning of, 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 of the kinda, the awful lies that were told after that atrocity whereby the 10 people that were killed, including the priest and the mother of eight, were gunmen and bombers, and an 11th person died from a mock execution, died of a heart attack. Mm. So, and the soldiers that perpetrated that went on to do Bloody Sunday and if they had been held, the account at the time Bloody Sunday would not have happened. And so it took them almost five decades to clear the names, not only were their loved ones murdered, but the the egregious, the egregious assault on the good character of those people that somehow they were culpable for their own deaths, all of that was cleared in an inquest. And mm. there's been numerous inquests like this. And really what this comes down to, Michael, is about the narrative of the conflict in the North. And yes, Republicans and loyalists did wrong too. But the context of it is that the British government want, want to kind of maintain a myth that somehow or other they, they, they want not as bad. When the truth is emerging in these forms through the Ombudsman's Office, where you see the collusion reports emerging, horrendous acts of collusion... Mm. Um, and we see it in a backdrop where David Cameron himself had to apologise to the Finucane family in the UK Parliament for the appalling collusion that led to the death of a human rights solicitor who had worked for many of these families during the course of his career when he was alive. But he was stopped short um, from instituting a public inquiry to get to the truth. And I think that's the micro, the micro of the macro problem here, is that when the UK... The narrative is challenged by its own actions in murdering its own citizens and covering it up. and a, An attempt is, is made in an open and democratic way to look at those by, by, by independent and robust processes. We see the obfuscation, the delaying tactics, and now we see the amalgamation of all of those tactics into this bill, which is principally about protecting British soldiers and the British realm and its activities in the north and indeed in the south because when we look at Dublin Monaghan. So 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 you gotta ask why. Wow. Why would the British government go to do that? And it's about it's about covering up. Because we've moved out of a conflict where rights were denied, which was a cause of conflict in some regards. And now you post a peace a peace agreement, we're in a scenario whereby and and then any any victims who had their loved ones murdered right across the community in this country, uh, but particularly in the North, no matter who the perpetrators were, they stand in a unique position globally. Because in any other democratic society, if you had a loved one murdered, you are not denied a right to a proper investigation. Mm -hmm. You are not denied the right to an inquest, and you are not denied the right to take a civil litigation case against the
4: perpetrators.
5: And all of those things, as we sit here today, post the passing of this bill tomorrow, and they'll get royal assent and by September it will be law, are in that position. Hmm. In a democratic kind of global situation, the UK, you have to think about that. What's yeah, uh, the reason behind and
1: it. Are there future consequences? Will it distort history if British force members or former members of the British forces are protected. Will it distort how history records how the British forces behaved during the troubles in Northern Ireland?
5: Oh, absolutely, 100%. And this, this is what this is principally about. I, we, we sat in a Belfast court just over two weeks ago. 17-year-old Leo Lorney uh, was murdered by British soldiers. A coroner who examined uh, the, uh, well, we we managed, along with Madeline Finucan solicitors, to, to, to get a new inquest to examine fresh material that we found in documents at Kew Gardens a number of years ago, which reopened the inquest. Now, the historical narrative, the official account, was that Leo Norni was a gunman, a 17-year-old gunman that shot at three soldiers, was a member of the IRA. His accomplice escaped and soldiers returned fire and killed him. The true circumstances in the Belfast Court by the coroner just over two weeks ago, was that a soldier who is now dead called Mackay had intentionally with alcohol in him and leading a patrol left the barrack at Springfield Road in West Belfast with the intent to murder a Catholic in West Belfast. And that's what emerged and that's the truth of what happened. Mm. And they were the lies that were told. Oh. And so this is happening on a regular basis where children are killed with rubber or plastic bullets or shot with lethal force or people are, 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 are shot in circumstances where mm. British soldiers concoct stories or the RUC concoct stories and tell lies. And that narrative is being overturned on a regular basis. It's kind of like Bloody Sunday or Balomer, as I explained mm. earlier. So the context of this is that it is changing the historical narrative about the role of the British Army presence in the North. Mm. And it wasn't by any chance, a benign rule. It was a very malignant role. And, and everybody
1: and, and everybody on this island completely opposed to this legislation. Mark, I've run out of time. I'm over time, yeah. in fact, so I have to leave it there. But thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Mark Thompson, CEO with Relatives for Justice. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM. Now, 90 young people who are living in nursing homes could be living in the community instead. At a cost of €4 million and Acquired Brain Injury Ireland is prepared to take on the work necessary to make that happen in conjunction with the HSE. Barbara O'Connell is the CEO of Acquired Brain Injury Ireland and on the line with us. And A very good morning to you, Barbara, and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Am I right in thinking that there are more than 90 young people living in nursing homes, but that you're suggesting that you could take 90 of those young people who are living in nursing homes out of those settings to live independently.
6: Yes, good morning, Michael. Yes, the Ombudsman um, did a report in 2021 and identified 1,300 people under the age of 65 in nursing homes. And basically, most of those have an acquired brain injury. And unfortunately, the situation at the moment is that if you have the unfortunate, um, you know, to to have an accident um, and where people will, your life will be saved in probably the most wonderful way. And then it's like, it's a lottery then what happens to you after that. And basically what happens is you, you could get into the National Rehabilitation Hospital, but you could wait years for that because there aren't enough places. Or what's happening is that people are being put into nursing homes as a last resort. And it is not an appropriate place for people to live.
1: And the Ombudsman have described it as a wasted life. And that's really what it is. Mm. And and the Ombudsman, I I don't think, is uh, one to overstate issues. And if lives are being wasted like that, uh, well, then uh, I'm sure most people would want something to change so that people can live independently. Uh, Is it rehabilitation that is not being made available to all of these young people who are in nursing homes?
6: Well, the situation is at the moment for, for ourselves as Acquired Brain Injury Ireland, we would have a whole um, this was expertise in brain injury. Now, for people who don't know what that is, if somebody maybe has had a stroke or maybe has had a fall, a bang to their head or maybe a brain tumour, those are the kind of range of, of things that can happen to people. And really what, what if you can get good rehabilitation, OK, so you may get your life back completely the way it was or you may be helped to maximise the abilities that you have. And the earlier your intervention, the better the prognosis for you. In other words, the better that you're going to be able to do. And the whole idea is that you're in an environment that encourages you to do things. That's not what happens in a nursing home. As we all know, they are great places. They offer great care to people who need medical care. These are young people under 65 who most in most cases do not need 24-7 medical care. For most of them, they're there for reasons because maybe their house isn't accessible I mean, the, the myriad of reasons that they're there, and I suppose what we're sh- we we have demonstrated in Acquire Brain is that if you get a specialist intervention, you can make a massive difference in people's lives. Mm. And we've already taken a lot of people out of nursing homes, some of which have actually gone back to live alone, and some have gone back to college and work. Like, it's, <laughs> it's that, you know, stark a difference for people.
1: Mm. Um, it's effectively ending uh, the potential of people uh, if... They are placed in a nursing home instead of getting the help and assistance that is possible to achieve things like that, to living independently, going on to university or work.
6: Yeah, well, I mean, if you can imagine, you know, like you're you're with, you're under 65, you're with people who are older. Many of them won't remember your name. Many, you know, you can't build a relationship with. You know, what does a normal 35 year old do? Um, And they don't have access to that. Um, and it's not an environment that, pr- that makes you do more for yourself because that's not what a nursing home is set up for, if you if you think of it logically. And what we're saying is, mm. if we, with this small investment, you mentioned 4 million, I mean, that's just a start, to be honest. But what we could do with that is set up a pathway which we have in some geographical areas. So there's some CHO areas, if you happen to live in it, you'll get a very good service. And there are others where you won't. And we're saying, look, if we could just get case managers in every area, we can help people navigate the pathway from that acute hospital traumatic sense, you know, setting yeah. to one where you can get what you need to get your life back together in the best way. So you can live the best life that you can.
1: Okay, and I, I take it that that geographical lottery that you yeah. talk a- about could be tackled in part at least by the appointment of case managers uh, which is something else you're looking to see happen at a cost of 500,000 a half a million
6: yeah yeah i mean it's very simple it's a very small amount of money and the impact of it is so so it does it it makes sure it does two things it is a one Stop Shop, in a sense, someone you can go to who will track people with brain injury all the way through um, their pathway and their journey and will signpost where to go, what it is that you need.
0: And they'll also support the families. So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify.
5: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen.
6: Who may now be coping with a new person, you know, that, that, you know, your, your husband or your son or your daughter may not be the way they were following their trauma. And you need help and guidance to deal with that. So this person can do both of those things. And I suppose then the specialist team that we're looking for is to go in and say, right, let's see who these 1,200 people are. Let's see what their needs are and at least start to get people moved out. And we would start with trying to get 90 people Like. Mm. I suppose. I suppose for anybody listening, it's me or you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's me. I have a fall. I bang my head. Well, like, what did you say? I want somebody 52, you know, to help me. Fifty-two yeah.
1: people a day. Is it uh, who acquire yeah. a brain injury?
6: Yeah. There's nineteen thousand a year. People don't realise it's right. you know it's bigger than cancer. It's bigger than hmm. you know it's, it is one of the biggest challenges we have and yet it's the one one that's least known and it's the one we can do something about.
1: Right, well four and a half million uh, it's an awful lot of money to me well it's an awful lot of money to me but it it is a a pittance really uh, in terms of government spending when you think of the surplus this year alone which is expected to be around 10 billion euro, that's 10,000 million so we're only talking about four and a half million when you contextualise it like that, it it really is a a drop in the ocean but I I wonder if you spend that four and a million euro would it also result in a saving to the state because nursing home care is very expensive
6: Absolutely it does two things, it gives people back their lives so they can give a contribution back to their communities, to their families it reduces the, you know if you can make somebody very independent they're going to need less help Um, and many people have gone back to work, you know we, we have statistics to show that many people have gone back to making a really good contribution and they live longer and more fulfilled lives I mean, at this stage, I think it's a human rights issue. Why should people be left and forgotten about um, in a place that's so inappropriate for them? I mean, they have a right to live a good life. Mm. And the thing is, for a very small amount of money we can make a massive impact okay we have the skills like we've demonstrated quite a yeah, i was just
1: going to say you're not,
6: Ireland, yeah, yeah i was
1: can, just going to say it. you're not making these figures up uh, this no. is based on your expertise <laughs> and you've priced it uh, and you know that you can work with 90 people in this way yeah. uh, for the four million and that the half a million would uh, cover the case managers in each of the nine hse areas um it's not the first time you've called for this kind of support from government. Uh, was it forthcoming last year?
6: No, um it's no, this is the first time we I suppose we've come out because it's based on the we we had we knew we've been taking people out of nursing homes for 20 years. I you know my own story is that my own brother was
1: Oh. Oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't know what happened to Barbara there. Uh, which was uh, unfortunate uh, because um, she was to tell us uh, that personal story. Uh, We'll try to get Barbara back on the line. Whilst uh, we're trying to do that, let me bring you some of the comments because a lot of people in touch haven't come to those comments just yet. Um, Somebody in touch with us about Christian Brothers and I'm not surprised to see a a text coming to us today. Some text that came to us yesterday uh, that we'll come to later in the programme as well. But I'm not surprised to see comments today following... Uh, the comments that were made in court yesterday uh, in the high court yesterday about christian brothers um we've uh, somebody saying that uh, the brothers leg of the catholic organisation should stop disrespecting christ by using the word christian there was nothing christian about them and there are scandals still emerging This year, people aren't fooled by the persona anymore. Thank you indeed. Tommy and Kel says, you keep going on about the stars of RTE and their salaries. What about the directors and their salaries and the freebies? They have to purge all of these at the top. Thanks, Tommy. I think I did say there were two issues, uh, the one that you mentioned and then the very high salaries. And uh, it seems that the top earners are the presenters who are earning far more than the 250,000 that the highest uh, paid executive is in receipt of. Uh, then we'd reach uh, it in touch, uh, who says, close RTE down and start again. That's the way you get rid of uh, those people and pay people they employ an ordinary wage. We might see a few new faces. We're sick looking at the same withered faces who think that they're God's gift, and that nothing can be done without them. Uh, bring on some young people, says Rita. Thank you, indeed. Oh four one nine eight three two thousand is our telephone number. Text or WhatsApp oh eight six one eight hundred six five eight. Email Michael at lmfm.ie. Uh, we've. Uh, got Barbara Becca on the line. This is Barbara O'Connell of Acquired Brain Injury Ireland. Uh, and uh, apologies, Barbara, I'm not sure what happened, but thanks for coming back to us. You were just about to tell us your own personal experience and that your brother has an acquired brain injury.
6: Uh, yes, Michael, sorry about that. Um, Yes, uh, my brother had two um, acquired brain injuries and um, really as a result of it he ended up in a nursing home. This was in, in 2000 and he was well, you know, well able to self-care, but he was just sleeping and watching TV and that was it. So it was myself my husband decided, you know, that we would approach the HSE to set up an alternative um, to see could we get him out. So we set up the first house in the community, which was a residential house, and Peter was the first person to live there with two others. And the difference in him was massive. I mean, he went then, you know, with special support with the staff that were there, he then became very independent. Um, And was able to, um, you know, travel himself with support. He was able to go out and live his own life, go to the bank, go to the shops, do things that normal people do. Um, and And the difference was amazing. And so much so that that's how the services started to develop. We were able to show and prove that with the right interventions and support, people can live really good lives. Okay. The sad thing is mm-hmm. that here we that's are, twenty three years yep. on, mm-hmm. yeah. and I'm still fighting. We are all still fighting in our organisation the same fight. Mm. The sad thing is when we get people out, we want to make sure they don't go back in and they don't put other people back in. Um, and that's you know that's where the case manager comes in, where we where we catch people and say no, these people should not be going in a nursing home if they if they get this and we're able to identify mm-hmm. the services they mm-hmm. need. It's, it's almost it's like a punishment. It's like a punishment
1: yeah. uh, for a, an Jeez. injury, a sentence of sorts. Uh, yeah. uh, 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 well, you, you you didn't look for funding at this uh, scale last year. Is that what you said? Or um, am well, I mistaken be, in my be memory? Honest, yeah.
6: We are we, we're always looking for funding because yeah. we're mm-hmm. developing the services okay. themselves. Okay. Um, it's just that this one is... You know, this is one that the ombudsman, like the government, have actually made a commitment to do something about this. So we're just calling them out and saying, you know, if you can give us the money, we can make this happen faster. This Hmm. is two years on, and less than 50 people have, have been... Um, Taken from nursing home. Okay, and you can do
1: ninety a year every year uh, at a minimum uh, take, but certainly ninety next year. Barbara, we leave it there and thank you indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me, Michael. Thank you very much. Barbara O'Connell is the CEO of Acquired Brain Injury Ireland.
3: Michael, Michael
1: Reed on LMFM. Let's talk about uh, the minimum wage and indeed uh, the proposed increase in the minimum wage which would see people who are earning minimum wage uh, get an extra 55 euro a-, a week or thereabouts that's on a, a 39 are uh, weak. Uh, it means uh, that there would be an increase of one forty an hour. Let's uh, speak uh, to Louise O'Reilly who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on enterprise trade and employment uh, and uh, to begin with uh, Louise uh, what do you make of that recommendation from the Low Pay Commission?
3: Well it's, it's good that the, uh, that the recommendation is going to uh, keep pace with or uh, perhaps even be ahead of inflation because last year uh, workers on the national minimum wage experienced an effective pay cut of uh, over four percent simply because their earnings didn't keep pace with inflation. They fell far behind. What we would like to see, though, uh, is a real and decisive move towards the, the living wage, and this is a good uh, this is a good first step. This, uh, so we're hopeful that the, the government will accept the recommendations of the Low Pay Commission.
1: All right. Um Is it not inflationary in itself? Because as you said, it's ahead of the rate of inflation. It's over twice the rate of inflation, is it not? It's a 12% increase. And I think uh, they're expecting inflation uh, at the end of the year to be around 5.5%.
3: I think what we need to realise, number one, is that last year the workers on the national minimum wage fell way, way behind inflation. So this is effectively just catching up. Number one, and number two, workers on uh, a low income don't save their money. They don't. Uh, they, they don't have investments. They don't sit on their money. Their money goes straight back into uh, the local economy. So when we talk about you know money in, money out, the money that they earn in a week. Workers on a low income, uh, they, they spend their money and they spend it in the local economy. So actually, the the, the money goes straight back in to uh, the tills in the uh, in their own local area. We you know we know yeah, this. Yeah. It, it doesn't. I mean, all available evidence suggests that uh, that we will not experience inflation that is fueled um, by wages. Our inflation is fueled by other factors, input mm. costs.
1: Somebody has to pay for it. Uh, And I think that's uh, one of the concerns about increasing pay like that. If minimum pay workers get an extra 55 euro a week, uh, well, where is that going to come from? And will it mean that they'll spend 55 euro extra or perhaps even more than that? Uh, Will it be uh, self-defeating?
3: I don't think so, um, because at the moment we see a lot of workers, you know, you're working twenty nine hours a week and you still find yourself, you can't meet your bills, you can't, uh, you know, mm. you, at the end of the day, you need to be able to live, you need to be able to pay your bills, you, you don't need to be dependent when you're working. So, you know, that's why we say a living wage is, is what would be ideal rather than this constant incremental increases in, uh, in the, the minimum wage. But uh, I take the point that you're making, there is a clause within uh, the National Minimum Wage that for employers who cannot pay and they mm. can go to the Labour Court. Now, I can tell you, Michael, that clause has never been used. To yeah. the best of my knowledge, mm. since the introduction of the uh, minimum wage 20 years ago, that clause has never been used. And research from uh, Maynooth says that uh, the economy can cope with higher wages for low-paid workers um, without having a detrimental impact on profits. That said, there are going to be individual employers who may find it difficult uh, to make that payment. For those employers, I would say that there is a section there. they can go to the Labour Courts, they can train the inability to pay. But to be fair, that hasn't actually happened since the introduction of the minimum wage.
1: Okay, but if they can pay, but that will mean reducing profits because it will mean reducing profits for all employers because they're paying more in wages. Uh, If there's an increase in outgoings, uh, well, then there has to be less uh, in profit. Um, Well, will they not just put prices up? And that will take it away from the value of the increase in the pay of minimum wage workers.
3: And I take the point you're making. However, it can't always be the case that workers on a low income have to wait in case their modest income has, a, has a, a detrimental impact on the economy. We're talking about uh, approximately 165,000 workers, um, not enough to create an economic shock and certainly um, a, a, an hourly increase of 1 euro forty, which I think is what the, uh, the Low-Pay Commission are, are recommending at the moment. But obviously, we haven't read the report mm. yet. That is not going to cause uh, a massive economic shock. What, what we really need to see it's the living wage, and the living wage gives stability. One of the things that employers will tell you that, uh, that they find most disconcerting is instability, not knowing what's coming down the track. So, you know, every year we wait, we wait for the report of the low-pay commission, and then that informs what uh, what the Stephen government will take in that regard. Mm. If we were to set a living wage and establish, um, and I had legislation I introduced recently to do just this, establish um, a living wage commission rather than a low-pay commission, that would give employers certainty because that would, they would be able to predict. That's one of the things, I think, that can insulate them from potential uh, shocks and the mm. potential impacts of it. But there's no doubt that businesses are struggling and are not saying that they're mm. not. There is a clause there. I do think as well, um, and it's something that I had raised recently at the um, Enterprise Trade and Employment Committee, that we need to start talking about how we can ensure that we transition to a living wage, and bring employers and workers with us. I think that Mm. would be the focus of the government. Certainly, That would be the focus of the Sinn Féin government.
1: If the living wage is correct, if it's calculated correctly in that it's the minimum amount of money that you need to have a half-decent lifestyle, that you can afford a new overcoat or a pair of shoes if you need it, uh, that uh, you can feed yourself uh, with meat and that sort of thing uh, as you would expect if you're working full-time, that you can Turn on the heat or the lights uh, as is appropriate. Maybe have a few jars on a Saturday night and a holiday once a year and that type of thing. Um, Basics. Uh, If they've calculated that correctly, well, then this does fall short because it'll bring the minimum wage from 11.30 to 12.70. That's next year. This year, the living wage is 13.10, uh, far higher than that rate of 12.70. uh, And undoubtedly, the 13.10 rate will have to increase next year because of the increase in the cost of living.
3: It will, and um, in fact, the the Living Wage Group, which is supported by TASC, SITU and and other organisations, calculated the Living Wage at uh, 13.85. So I think there's a number of things that need to be done. Number one, uh, the government needs to uh, agree a formula on how the Living Wage is going to be calculated. Number two, they need to establish a Living Wage Commission which will give workers certainty into the future and also give employers certainty because they will know well in advance what the, likely, uh, what the likely increase is going to be. But I don't think it's too much to ask for, for workers to be able to do the absolute basics, to be able to feed themselves and, and pay their bills. And let's not forget, in their submissions to the low Pay Commission, uh, the ICTU, the Irish Congress of Unions, Michael, recommended that the living wage be set at €15.30. So, you know, th- there is scope there for wage increases for low-paid workers. I think we need to look at that. But I also think that we need to have a very serious conversation with employers and specifically small to medium enterprises because they're the ones who are going to uh, probably feel the pinch the most mm. from any increase uh, to, to workers on a low wage and I think we need to talk to them, as I said it was something that I had raised with the departmental officials at the Employment tra- uh, Enterprise Trade and Employment Committee recently I think that's something that the government aren't looking at I think they should be looking at it which is why as I said we wanted to see the, uh, the establishment of Uh, living wage commission rather than a low pay
1: commission. All right. Uh, Employers are worried uh, this will be a significant cost. Uh, Is there a risk of negotiating thousands of people out of work?
3: I don't think so. Um, We're in a period of uh, full employment um, at the moment or as as close to as most economies ever get. I don't think that's the case. Um, I've had certainly significant discussions at the Enterprise, Trade and Employment Committee and with ministers in relation to expanding the work permit scheme, because we actually need more workers, um, because there are significant job vacancies. So I, I don't think uh, that there's necessarily going to be a, a massive cliff edge, and I don't think there's going to be job losses. And as I said, there is a flaw within the National Minimum wage Gas for employers who can't pay that they can go to the labour court I'm not sure that employers would, would necessarily love doing that, but it is fair for those who genuinely can't pay. But I think we need to start looking at working with employers to transition over to the living wage and the stability that that brings. That should be our focus. And bringing not just the workers but also the employers with us, that involves a discussion in relation to, um, you know, directly with government between the workers and uh, workers' representatives and employers' representatives and all voices Need to be at the table, and I'm specifically referring to small to medium enterprises because they're the ones who need to be heard and delivered
1: from this. Yeah, okay. Um, But maybe the employers could afford to pay. This increase in the minimum wage—if that's all that they had to do—but it's obviously going to be met by calls for increases in wages across the board. Because if you're paying somebody eleven thirty now, uh, and you bring that up then to twelve seventy, somebody who's on twelve seventy is going to say, "Well, surely I deserve an increase as well," uh, and that goes all the way up the line, does it not?
3: Well, the maintenance of relativities, I suppose, will happen, um, and it happens everywhere when uh, when the workers on the bottom jump. Um, than the the, the people who are directly above them. Obviously, there is going to be uh, a knock-on consequential uh, increase. But again, that is a factor that is considered if the the employer wanted to go to the Labour Court. And it is something that needs to be factored into when we talk about moving to a minimum wage. We need to look at how that's going to impact, not just on Mm. those who are on the minimum wage, but on every single worker within the economy.
1: What, though, if the employer didn't want to go to the Labour Court and thought... Saw this for a game of darts, I'm going to Poland.
3: Well, that would be very regrettable but I don't think that wages are the only factor that uh, that Mm. keeps
1: But will it impact competitiveness?
3: I don't think it will. No, I don't think it will. In fact, I think Having um, a, a good basic minimum or living wage uh, is something that makes the the, uh, the 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 country an attractive place to be. I think we do. We have seen uh, immigration happening at the moment. We mm. know that people are leaving. They're going to Australia. They're going to Dubai. We can see that. Mm. Uh, they're going to America. I was recently in San Francisco and I met a lot of young, educated, enthusiastic Irish people who yeah. would like to be home and can't, you know. So yeah. raising the living standards mm. is a good thing. Raising the living standards for for those who are on the minimum is a very good thing, mm. but that, that will lift the, the living standards. And remember, the people who are on the lowest incomes, Michael, when the money comes in, the money goes out, they don't save it, they don't Mm. invest it, they spend it
1: in the local economy. Okay, but can there be unintended consequences? Uh, You're talking about uh, going abroad and getting value for money, uh, whether that's San Francisco or somewhere in in Europe. Uh, We're hearing, of course, from people, uh, or probably will hear from people, when uh, tickets are are sold and hotels are are paid for, that it'll be cheaper to get a a flight uh, to a European destination uh, and pay for the tickets to go to see Taylor Swift, as well as a hotel uh, and try to do it in dublin without the cost of the flights
3: and we saw that recently where it was the three young men from sligo flew to rome for a gig and uh, they said it was actually cheaper to do that yeah. to come from sligo fly to rome go to the same gig but are you going gone. to make
1: it that worse mean. by increasing minimum wage
3: i don't think so i don't think so i don't think there's any necessity for uh, for the the increases to be passed on to consumers i think what's going on with hotels and hotel pricing is mm. a very separate thing and it's very welcome that the Minister has, uh, has called for a review of this just to, to see if the prices are out of kilter but certainly and it goes levels would suggest that the prices around specific events mm. such as Taylor Swift cause a massive spike and, and I mean a massive spike nothing that would be normal I mean I understand sure. the, the, the mm. law of supply and demand
1: But I don't, I don't mean just the hotels I mean uh, to spend a weekend in Dublin to go for a pint I mean, what is it uh, in some of the pubs in Temple Bar, a tenner uh, to go out for your dinner and compare it to, let's say, uh, doing that in Spain or Portugal or Greece?
3: Yep, absolutely. It it is expensive. Um, But again, that sort of underlines the fact that workers on the minimum wage are being very much left behind. Whatever chance you have of a tenner, spending a tenner on a pint, If you're on, um, you know, a decent wage, if you're on a very low income, that's just, you know, that's way beyond you. So I don't think there's anything wrong with increasing uh, increasing wages for the lowest earners. I think, in fact, when we do that, it comes back straight back into the economy. So, you know, and I don't believe that there uh, is a necessity to pass on any increases to the consumer. I think that, you know, we need to look at maybe the the super profits that are being made by a very small number in the hospitality industry. The vast majority, though, are are living sort of hand-to-mouth. We know that. This increase, yes, it is going to be uh, a concern for some employers. I know that it is, and I do think the government needs to be talking to them and listening to their concerns. But I also would say there is a clause they can go to the labor Court. That has never been done. So, you know, evidence suggests that uh, the economy would be able to bear this uh, modest increase and it's not a huge amount, my good and honest. It's not. Uh not a huge amount for those people who are really genuinely struggling to get by and the people who are at the business end yeah. of the, uh, Well a lot
1: areas. of people would say 55 euro a week isn't a, a lot but I think the people on minimum wage would say my god it would be a dream come true it,
3: it, yeah. it is, it is. Mm-hmm. and for, for those people who are on the lowest income this will mean you know for many of them the difference between being able to pay or not pay a bill you know I mean you're yeah. not talking about people suddenly going oh I've, I've, there's an increase in the minimum wage I'm going down to the Temple Bar for you know a of <laughs> meal and, and a ten quid point that's so. not going yeah. to be happening mm. and you know that mm. and your yeah. listeners know that but i do think you know we need to switch the focus away from uh you know what, what about if this is going to drive inflation you're talking about 165,000 people not a huge number uh, in, in terms of the the worker population almost 2 million it's a, it's a small enough number not enough to drive you know a massive inflation spiral or anything like that but i do think for those workers we need to look at uh, we need to look at them and we need to ensure that they have enough to live. I mean that's what the living world
1: okay. is. All right. We we'll leave there and thank you indeed for joining us this morning.
3: Thanks, Michael.
1: And that is Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Fein's spokesperson on enterprise, trade, and employment. Our apologies for the poor sound quality of that interview.
3: Michael Michael
1: Reid on LMFM. Yesterday, the government published its tax strategy group papers, uh, which will have implications in terms of how the government ministers draw up uh, the budget for next year. There could be bad news. Uh, for motorists, uh, particularly for SUV motorists. Let's speak uh, to the AA. We're joined once again by Paddy Cummins, who's uh, the head of communications with AA Ireland. And a very good morning, Paddy. Thanks uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, They're talking about raising €1.5 billion by putting extra tax onto heavier cars, particularly SUVs, to make up for lost revenue because so many people are buying electric vehicles. What do you make of this?
0: Yeah, there's a a certain irony there given that the um, electric vehicles that Have replaced, Uh, all of the other vehicles are heavier than the vehicles they replaced. Um, But, um, yeah, it's a strange one in some regard. Look, look, very simply, because uh, there's such a move to reduce emissions, transport emissions in particular, and and look, we all acknowledge that that's necessary. Uh, The result of that is, is that people, you know, EV sales are up 66% versus last year, people are moving towards electric vehicles, but the government are losing money in terms of tax take, because Traditionally, how they taxed you and I on a vehicle was based on what came out of the tailpipe, so uh, you know emissions and car, you know CO two emissions, and that isn't a thing with an electric vehicle. So what's going to have to happen is they're going to have to figure out a way to charge, uh, to, to recoup that lost revenue, which, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, is estimated to be about one point five billion um, when when EVs are in, in full swing. So. This is a little bit of kite flying. They're 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 looking at several options. Uh, one of those, as you mentioned, is weight. Now, it won't be just the weight of, uh, you know, if you read through the documents it won't be just the weight of of the your your normal SUV. Those tend to already have been taxed because those heavier SUVs tend to be at the higher brackets anyway. Hmm. But I think reading through what what it looks like will probably happen is that, um, while everyone who is buying an EV at the moment. Um, you know, they're not taxed any differently, so you could buy a, a small little Volkswagen up, or you could buy a, a very heavy uh, BMW iX. You know, that's almost you know two and a half, three tons, and you will be paying the same tax on that vehicle. I think what you know, reading between the lines, what's being proposed is that in the future yeah, you will pay. Dependent on the weight of that car as well, so they can't charge you as I said on on what's coming out the tailpipe because there is nothing. So they'll 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 adjust it and make it, a, you know, make a new tax that okay, you bought an EV that's nice, but your your vehicle is very very heavy, so let's charge you a little
1: bit more for that. All right, am I thinking that? Am I right in thinking that there was a, a surge in the sales of SUVs? back in the day when the Green Party tried to incentivise people to drive diesel vehicles.
0: Yeah, well, look, you know, from bringing it back to 2008, 2008, and the government at the time said, well, you need to all buy diesels because diesels have lower CO2 emissions. So we flipped from a country that was 70 30 in terms of ratio, petrol and diesel, to pretty much overnight, seventy thirty and not one point eighty percent, twenty percent diesel versus petrol, and 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 there's lots of people who thought they were doing the right thing. At the time, they were told they were doing the right thing, and then as it as it emerged, maybe diesel wasn't as clean as, as everyone thought. So there were things called NOx emissions, and those mm. NOx emissions are are the bits that you know aren't great for your lungs. And um, but no, there's, we're in a situation now where there are people in the your listeners who are still driving an older car. They're driving their diesel. They haven't necessarily changed their car like because they didn't have the money. And fortunately for those people, they're starting to face the prospect of being taxed a little bit more. There's, there's, there's things being muted in terms of... Um, uh, in terms of increases in duty again on petrol and diesel. I think that's always going to be death by a thousand cuts in terms of increasing petrol and diesel charges. But there's other areas that you know being talked about in these, these um, policies in terms of things like uh, congestion charges. So if you're driving, say, into Dublin city centre, you might be charged a little bit more. And there's also a, a project called Project Bruce, and that project is looking at uh, tolling. So we'll start to see the end of the public-private partnerships in sort of 2033 as they stand at the moment. So government will maybe start to look at, instead of, um, as in other countries where they close down the tolls, they might find another way to charge for using the roads.
1: But won't people say it's unjust to incentivize people on one hand to buy an SUV and then to turn around and slap them in the face with the other hand and penalise them for having that SUV.
0: Well, look, I mean, they, they, there's a couple of points here, and look, in principle you're absolutely right, because um, we were all incentivised to buy electric vehicles in the last number of years. We've been doing so, but but the technology is still sort of in its infancy and they tend to be quite big and quite heavy uh, as a result. Now, having done that, there's two points. One, right, they don't want everyone driving big, heavy vehicles. And look, you know, all serious, you know, all joking aside, you, you you don't want your five-year-old kid hit by a by two and a half tons of SUV. But if you're, um, you know, if those people are now going to be saying, all right, okay, I did the right thing, and now I'm going to be taxed for it, yeah. I think there's going to be a middle ground. I think maybe we ran away with ourselves a little bit in terms of some of the EVs that are being. Bought at the moment they are very big um, and, uh, you know, maybe there's going to be uh, a sort of a, if a, a middle ground as the technology emerges and, and gets better where we'll be driving cars that are a little bit more like a Volkswagen Golf than a, than a yacht.
1: Right. Um, they're also talking about congestion charges. Uh, uh, yes. Look. How, how would that work or would it work?
0: Well, it it works insofar as we know it works in in, in principle. With the likes of London, it, it you know, it was controversial, but it was successful in terms of getting people. Onto public transport but the the issue there was that in london public there, there was already a very well developed public transport network anyway yeah. so um in ireland that's not the case uh, dublin is still um is better than everywhere else but it's still imperfect so uh, it, there's a very un, you know it's it's a a, a, a very thinly uh, veiled um, policy of getting cars off the streets of Dublin, and uh, the, but the result is at the moment we're in a sort of a halfway house where there's not enough room for the cars, there's not enough room for the buses, and um, no one is really going anywhere in much of a hurry. But look, that's that's. De- I think you will definitely see congestion charges for Dublin at some point, and uh, if that works, then you, you could possibly see them in, in the likes of Cork. I, I I don't envisage Drohada Navin being affected by those sorts of things, but I would say it's for the for the capital.
1: Right. Um. Would it even work in the capital? I suppose is what you're saying. Uh, is it a case of hold your horses, or uh, taking a, a look at, at uh, if uh, the horse is in front of the cart? We
0: know now that we have to see improvements in public transport. It's it, it, what people, you know, it's often been sort of talked about that the Green Party currently are operating a kamikaze politics. The system at the moment, where they know that they won't get in, or, or, or suspecting they might not get in, so they're trying to push through as many as the, of their environmental policies possible for, for the booted out. Um, whether that's true or not, we'll, we'll figure out in due course. But what we're, what we're certainly going to see is is a real push to uh car drivers and try and push people into public transport. But mm. like, as you and I have talked on the show several times, if the options are there, maybe people will use them. But we know they're not there for most people outside of the pale.
1: Yeah, and whether you can uh, afford to buy an electric vehicle or, or not, uh, one way or another is going to be more expensive uh, to drive if you don't have a, an EV, and that certainly will come into play in October when petrol and diesel increase again. Yeah,
0: we'll see the gradual drip feed of those uh, duties increasing um you know petrol petrol prices and diesel prices are reasonably steady at the moment about 165 155 and um, in, in favour of of diesel um, you know, the, the, if you catch your mind back to about a year ago, we were looking at record prices for, for petrol and diesel. So so we're, we're in a sort of a settled position, but, but look, those prices are going to go up. We know duty will be gradually increased as well on, on petrol and diesel across consecutive budgets. Um, so, so we will see prices increase on those if nothing else happens. Um, but but yeah, it's going to become more expensive to use your car. That unfortunately is the is the headline figure, and and uh, the, the, with the view of getting people to to explore other avenues and other options rather than their car.
1: All right, Paddy, thank you very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning, Paddy Common, head of communications with AA Ireland. <laughs>
3: Michael Michael Reed Reed on on
1: LMFM. Now we were speaking with uh, Father Sean Healy of Social Justice Ireland at the beginning of uh, today's program, and thanks uh, to the listener WhatsApping us saying that uh, a war. I thought I was going to hiccup. Excuse me. Our listener, excuse me, our listener saying a war on poverty is long overdue. Thank you indeed for that. I don't think uh, it's the view uh, of another caller. Uh, I certainly uh, think uh, it's uh, quite the opposite. Um, and this is Damien, I think, uh, who WhatsApped saying uh, another 25 euro. This is what Social Justice Ireland's is proposing in the budget for next year that core social welfare rates would be increased by €25. Another €25 for fags and drink? Thank you indeed, uh, Damien. I I don't know. I think uh, people on social welfare probably spend uh, their money on more than just fags and drinks, uh, Damien. Uh, And... uh, (sighs) may uh, take umbrage with what you are said. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, when it comes uh, to SUVs and electric vehicles, uh, John Conlon and Bally McKenney in touch saying they're looking for everyone to drive electric vehicles. If uh, they'd go and put more charging points around the country, maybe it would happen. But as you stated, they put the cart before the horse. Thank you, John, for that. Jackie has been in touch with us. Uh, we've had so much talk about the Christian Brothers on the programme and Brother Edmund Garvey and uh, the proposal to rescind uh, the freedom of Drogheda that was given to Brother Garvey in 1997 because of uh, a legal strategy uh, that he's overseen which thwarts victims of child sexual abuse at the hands of Christian brothers from getting redress making it impossible in a lot of cases Jackie as I say uh, texting us this morning WhatsApp message It says, I'm still thinking and reflecting and gathering my thoughts on what's happening in Drogheda. The interview yesterday, which you had with P.O. Smith, was shocking to child sexual abuse survivors, in my view, using or bringing individuals' survivors' stories together. Into This debate is not helpful. Let's keep our attention on what this is all about. It's about supporting child sexual abuse survivors by sending a clear message that Drogheda and County Louth will not support any individual that adopts a strategy that delays or denies justice for child sexual abuse survivors. So on those grounds, it is compelled to remove stroke rescind. The freedom of Drogheda from Brother Edmund Garvey because of the legal strategy he adopted. End of story. Can the citizens of Drogheda who are of the same view as myself please reach out to their local representatives and respectfully inform them how they feel about this. However, there is one local representative who has already supported us on Monday, and that was Paddy McQuillan. It's important that he's acknowledged for that. Thank you, Jackie, uh, for your message, as always, to the programme. Uh, if you agree with Jackie um, well then perhaps you want to contact uh, your local councillors in Drogheda or you can contact us and we can uh, make your views known or if you disagree with Jackie you can do that too and our our telephone number as you probably know is oh four one nine eight three two thousand text or whatsapp 0861800658 email michael at lmfm.ie and we will come to some more comments before we finish up today but Uh, This story raised its head again yesterday, not just on this programme, but in the High Court. And the reports from the High Court were truly disturbing and shocking to think of what's going on. Uh, Shane Phelan uh, in the Irish Independent reporting uh, that uh, the solicitors uh, for Ken Grace uh, says that uh, the Christian brothers are pursuing cynical legal tactics to frustrate Ken Grace's lawsuit. This is Ken Grace who is suing the Christian brothers because he was abused by Paul Hendrick, who was a Christian brother. He was a principal in Westland Row and he uh, whipped Ken Grace when he was 13 years of age in his underwear in a dungeon with a cat of nine tails uh, whilst Hendrik himself, this holy Christian brother, uh, was wearing nothing but a leather thong. Um, and it was abuse that went on for years and destroyed Ken Grace's life. Um, but Colum Keane, uh, reporting that in the Irish Times, uh, about that case as well, and how the legal team for Ken Grace are very concerned that not only have the Christian brothers got this policy strategy in place that makes it impossible to sue them, Uh, they're also doing something else which is that if survivors are successful suing the Christian brothers, there may be no money. Uh, And that the legal team for Kenneth Grace are saying that they've transferred property, so it's beyond the reach of Ken Grace seeking damages for historical sex abuse. This is an incredible claim, really. Uh, Making it uh, impossible to sue them um, because they failed in their duty of care and allowed the child to be uh, abused in a way that would never leave that child for the rest of their life. Here we are 50 years on. Um, But now, if you are successful, if this claim is correct, uh, there's nothing to sue us for because we're going to get rid of everything. Uh, The solicitor, Philip Tracy of Coleman Legal, said the Christian Brothers might be attempting to protect its assets by putting them out of reach and so as to frustrate any recovery of damages. He spoke about four property transfers since Kenneth uh, Grace took a case against the Christian Brothers in 2019. One property transfer took place this year, the other three before that. Um, Some of the brothers uh, who are now defendants in the case used to hold properties and trusts for the Christian Brothers, but they've transferred ownership to third parties. In other cases properties have been sold. There was a house in Dunleary that uh, was owned by three brothers who are defendants in the case but they didn't do anything wrong nobody's saying they did anything wrong but they transferred this house in Dunleary to a company called Christian Brothers CLG. This is what the court has been told by Ken Grace's legal team. Uh, there's land in last Nevin that has been sold uh, to property companies, uh, a house on Griffith Avenue that's been sold to private owners. Uh, a concerted practice that may be a systemic effort by the Christian Brothers to divest themselves of assets in order to frustrate the recovery of damages. By Cang Grace, who was so horribly uh, abused, uh, according uh, to Philip Tracy, the solicitor for Coleman Legan. Uh, the story uh, in the Irish Times today that Colum Keane has written also reports uh, on how the court heard uh, from the legal team for the Christian Brothers, who said there's no intention to hide assets. Um, and that they said it was unique that the head of a religious order would say that they wish to go into mediation. This was the point P.O. Smith was saying, the Christian Brothers say they want to go into mediation, uh, but uh, they have entered an appearance in the case as a private citizen. The Christian Brothers, uh, the court heard, was probably unique in opting this position not to nominate someone for the purpose of litigation, Why have they done that? What is the purpose, was one of the questions. Uh, It appeared to be to put others off suing the Christian Brothers, which was described as a horrible agenda, distasteful and a despicable agenda. But uh, an agenda uh, that uh, is the one that is being adopted by the Christian Brothers, unless I am completely wrong, said the solicitor. That's where our time runs out for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next program tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye.
0: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us,
4: email now michael at lmfm.ie.